Ireland Talks podcast with Kevin Byrne. Hello and you're very welcome to the podcast. Joining me on the podcast today is an Irish author, lecturer and broadcaster, said to be one of the few practising Shanachies remaining in Ireland. He maintains the largest private collection of folklore in Ireland. I'm delighted to be joined by Ireland's greatest storytellers and national treasures, Eddie Lenahan. I travelled to Crusheen in County Clare, where myself and Eddie sat at the back of Fogarty's pub on a cold November day. I began by saying to Eddie that he was born in Brosna in County Kerry. I wasn't. You weren't? I was born in Brosna. I, sp- I said it wrong. All outsiders call it Brosna. Okay. There's always no an outsider that pronounce it like you did there, Brosna. But the people from there, they pronounce it Brosna. Okay. And the older generation than me even pronounce it differently again. They pronounce it Breshna. Okay. So there's three pronunciations of B-R-O-S-N-R. And there's Brosna, there's Brosna, or Brosna, as I would say. And then there's Breshna from the older ones. You'll always know the difference between the older generation, my generation, and outsiders. Okay. For the one word. So I, I've come as an outsider. You would. <laughs> um, but tell me about uh, life there and growing up and, and where you got the interest in folklore. My interest in folklore came late. My father, of course, was the local hardness maker. Just like my grandfather was a hardness maker, my uncle was a hardness maker. Uh, it was a family trade. And, as you know, just like blacksmiths, people had to come into a hardness maker in the horse-drawn age and where they would gather in a hardness maker's shop that tended to talk, just as in a forge, and there'd be stories, there'd be gossip, and my father knew them all. He knew all the local farmers, because it was those people he dealt with, although he, he fixed shoes as well, anything to do with leather. Shoes, belts, hardness. Because, you see, you wouldn't make a living out of hardness alone. A good hardness maker, he made stuff to last. And there was the problem. The better he made them, (laughs) the less he's living. Uh, A good hardness maker probably would make a a good living down in the county Tipperary. Or up in Meath. Or in North Cork or some place like that where there'd be good land or in East Limerick. But in our part of the country, where the land wasn't great, you, where farmers would make the hardness last and last and last, well, you'd need to be into other things as well. Yeah. So, it was the same, of course, when, when uh, horses finished with, with uh, blacksmiths. They had to go into other things. They had to go into welding, they had to go into gate making, they had to go into whatever. That's why today, whichever of them survived, that's what they're into. And of course, my father knew all the farmers. And later on, when I went to college, I'm fair to him, my mother died at the age of 49, back in the 1960s. She died in 1969 and there was three of us in the family. And... It wasn't so easy for men that time, you know, to take over a family. It wasn't the done thing. 
Like today, you get men wheeling prams. You didn't get many men wheeling prams back in the 1960s. It wouldn't. I asked one old man. I asked him one time, and God, he, he was a man who was born in 1889. He remembered the Boer War. He was one of the first men I ever went to, to record. Yeah. I have a lot of him on tape. Most interesting man. He's the man who saw evictions, personally. Landlord evictions. Valuable stuff nowadays. And he would be the equivalent of Thomas O'Krehan from the, the, the Blaskets. He even looked like him. I have a couple of photos of him. I wish I had taken more, but I didn't have the, I didn't have the resources. Yeah. All, everything I have recorded down the years came out of my own pocket. Okay. I have never got a penny of a grant. You You've never had, a f had funding? Never had funding. All the, all the, the archives that I have is from my own pocket down the years. All the thousands and thousands of hours of recordings down there in my own house. But I remember this old man. And whatever, it always stuck in my mind, whatever tempted me to ask the question, what would he have called a man who stayed at home and did the work around the house that time? And do you know the reply he gave? No. A Judy. That's what a man at the time was called who did a woman's work around the house. A Judy. A Judy. Yeah. <laughs> that's the name they had in him. <laughs> So that's what you were called if you did a woman. So there's a lot of duties walking around now, <laughs> pushing, pushing prams and pushing, uh, doing the wash-up at home. They're all duties, duties. <laughs> to that man and that generation. Because it was expected of a man that time that he'd be out uh, doing the ploughing and doing such work. Yeah. Whereas a woman's work, they were very defined. Yes. A woman's work was around the house. She would be, she would be doing hard work. She'd be washing the clothes on a washboard, which would, I tell you, you'd need good knuckles for that. And she would be doing the, the churning, which was dash churning, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, you wouldn't be on building up muscles with that either. So, you know, it was no easy work that a woman no. was doing. None. And indeed, back then, the, the, the woman couldn't even go to the pub. No. No. And I'm sure that didn't stop them drinking. No. They had that little drop. They had that, and of course the drop tended to be sherry. Yeah, sherry, and for occasions. Did, did you find like uh, you know, from from the pubs like there was always stories. Even like I'm in my forties, but like growing up, my dad, my mom would always have stories of, you know, the banshee and and all the black dog, for example. From like we we live in in Fingal, so there was all a lot of those stories of the banshee and it, it followed particular names of families like the burns i'm a burn right it's a wicklow name Charlie. it's a wicklow name exactly um but the the stories did, did you find that those stories always came to the pubs and the lads back then would would be talking about you know i, I heard the banshee i'm certain i heard the banshee or i'll tell you there was a lot of pub talk, by all means, but more so around the fire at night, when people hadn't the price of going to the pub. Yeah. Because money was scarce. Money was desperately shot. And that same old man that I'm talking about that called men Judy's, I collected a huge amount of lore from him. And he told me that in 1916, the, the year of the rising, 
a pint went up from twopence. Two old pence now when there was 240 pence in a pound. It went up from twopence to twopence halfpenny. Two and a half pence. And people thought they were robbed. Yeah. Some thought they were robbed because it went up by halfpenny. Yeah. Now, that'll tell you how short of money people were. Mm. I forget what the weekly wage for a working man was at the time. I doubt if it was five shillings. A crown. If it was five shillings a week, he yeah. was lucky to be getting it. Another man who told me, and he's not dead that long at all, that during the hungry thirties, during the, the emergency, not, not the emergency, that was the Second World War, but uh, Dev's hungry thirties, you know, during yeah. the economic war, yeah. there was men who came to him because he was a relatively well-off man. He hadn't a huge farm, but he was a relatively well-off man because his father had been a, a man who worked for the English administration during the, the, the changeover uh, between the, the old state and the new state. And they were relatively well-off people and popular people. His people had been Protestant, but he was a Catholic. And they were very well-off people, kind people, good people. And he said during that terrible time during the 1930s, which was terrible in America and England, starvation times, people came to him willing to work for nothing except their feed for a week. That's how bad things were. Now, everybody hails de Valera as being the saviour of... He was, in many ways. And he was a, you know, he was a good leader and nobody makes out that he was otherwise. But he nearly broke the country during the economic war. An awful lot of people nearly starved that time. And they have emigrated even in more droves, except there was no place for them to go, because England was having its own similar problems. So uh, there were awful times here, and I see these books now coming out time after time after time. The country is full of them now, looking back at the rosy times in Ireland. If you really look back at some of these, I tell you, times were not so rosy, especially in the 40s and 50s. Mm. More especially in the 30s. There were the hungry 30s, and again, there were the hungry 50s. In the 40s. People had a place to go. They could join the British Army yeah. because they were direly needed in the British Army, which was the irony of the whole thing. We broke with England and then we needed England again. I am my, the present book I'm doing, Military Memories, a, a collection out of all the recordings I, I'm, I have done. Yeah. It's quite a break with the ones I have done before, which tended to be about the, the good people, the fairies and the other kind of folklore. This one is a little bit different. It's, uh, while I was doing the other books, I was noticing that I, I have an awful lot here about, about factual history, but in these people's own words, because they were there. They were through ambushes, they were through the First World War, they were through the War of Independence, they were through uh, the Second World War, they were through the Civil War, which was terrible, awful. Yeah. Yeah. And I decided, look, I'd better transcribe these and I'd be able to use them again, and that's what I'm doing now. And just last night, just last night, I came across uh, one by an old man who's still alive, he's 99, but he said to me, about about an ambush 
an ambush by the black and tans and it was an awful thing there was an ambush on the black and tans i'm sorry and as a result they attacked a church with all the people inside in it and made uh, to bring the priest down off of the altar and he wouldn't come he was a stubborn man and they had to back down but the, this man he said one of the terrible villains, one of the awful black blackguards, of course there were in some cases, in other cases the black and tans weren't as bad as they were painted, you know, they were human too. Mm. And a lot of them, by the way, resigned when they saw what they, what they had let themselves in for in Ireland. We can get back to that in a minute. But he said, they were terrible blackguards, but he summed up in the end by saying, but look, he says, you can't be holding grudges forever. Mm. A lot of our own people had to go to England too. <laughs> he was fair. Yeah. He saw both sides. He seen the balance. He saw the balance. Yeah. Which is a nice thing. Yeah. That an old person. And and uncommon in a sense. Uncommon. Yeah. An awful lot of people have this mantra that wasn't the black and tans a shore of bastards. Wasn't they a terrible they were let out of the lunatic asylums in England? Which is very common. Yeah, absolutely. They weren't. Most of them were ex servicemen coming back from the war, promised the blessed land of whatever in England, and it wasn't there. What was there was unemployment for them and maybe their families too. And then they were promised a pound a day to go to Ireland to quell these Irish rebels. And what did they do? They took it. A pound a day was big money that time. Came to Ireland and found <laughs> they were being attacked from all sides by the IRA with great policy. Attack them, attack them, get them to burn the town, turn the Irish people against them. Yeah. Great, great tactics. Yeah. And, you know, they, they found that, hey, this isn't where I'm supposed to be. And there was a book published recently, a list of the, I don't have the name of it now, but I have it, I bought it, most interesting, a list of all the black and tans, where they came from, their religion, their previous trade, etc. And it's remarkable, the number of them who resigned. Yeah. They couldn't obviously stick it. Probably a lot of men of conscience. Yeah. Of course they did carry out some terrible atrocities. Of course if you, they if you, did. If you... The burning of Cork, the burning of Venice Diamond, Balbriggan, by all means they did. But we rarely see what may have led up to that. Yes. A lot of them were ambushes, like in the case of here in Clare, in the case of Venice Diamond and Lehinch, the Renine ambush, where there were seven or eight of them killed. Yeah. Well, maybe not seven or eight, but at least six of them killed, you know. Usually... As in the Civil War in Kerry, <laughs> the things don't happen on their own. It's rarely out of the blue that things happen. Normally there's a reason and a reason and a reason. Like, for example, Belly Seedy in Kerry for the Civil War. That horrible, horrible thing that everybody knows about Belly Seedy. Yeah. You see the huge monument going into Tralee. The, the thing that the Free State soldiers did by blowing up those, those nine prisoners uh, brought out from Ballymullen barracks and tied together and put a, a bomb between them and blew them up. Yeah. But why? Yeah. It was because of the previous bomb in Nachnagashel, uh, the, the, the trap mine that blew up the six, six Free State soldiers, yeah. which was made in my parish. Yeah. 
Really? Of Rosna. Yeah. And that will be in the book too, the lead up to that. And I have the names of the people who maybe made that mine. When do you expect, uh, this is the book you're working on at the moment? Yes, I, I want to do it properly. Oh yeah. I want to do it properly. Yeah. Because that will be a dangerous book. Yeah, I can imagine. It'll be a dangerous book. I can and imagine. I get a lot of criticism, but there's no, a book without criticism isn't a book at all. Absolutely. There's too many local history books that are plumos, plumos, yeah. and are, they're one-sided. Yeah. And most of them tend to be Republican. Yeah. Wasn't the Republic, wasn't the Republicans all heroes and wasn't the other crowd, a crowd of villains? Yeah. It's rarely as simple as that. Yeah. And for example, in the Civil War, why are there no songs praising the Free Staters? The losers make the great heroes, you see. Yeah. The losers always make the wonderful. It's and, and I'm not saying that the Republicans were a crowd of villains. They weren't. Mm. There were villains on both sides. Yeah. There were psychopaths on both sides. Yes. Just as in the North. Yeah. Absolutely the same thing happened in the North. Look at some of the B specials. Look at the UVF. Look at the IRA splinter groups. Look at all the innocent people that were killed yeah. in between. It's the people who are caught in between are the, are the terrible victims. Yeah. And very often then who have to keep their mouths shut or they'll get the knock on the door at night. When law and order breaks down, you're finished. Yeah. Because then you have no recourse. To this day, it's, it's still very contentious. There's, there's A hundred years later? Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, and I often say that, what will happen in the Middle East? Yeah. What will happen in the Middle East? Yeah. Because of outside interference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why didn't the West leave and other places, all of these arms merchants who don't give a damn about people and their families. All they want to do is sell, sell, sell. Yeah. Be it Russia or China or Sweden or France or England or uh, Germany. Or, all they want to do is sell weapons, sell weapons, yeah. sell weapons. Without consequence, one life is valuable. What about a hundred thousand lives? Yeah. Like America is known as the world economy. Oh, I'm not surprised. Yeah, no. But so is Russia. Yeah, so is Russia. Russia has nothing yeah. else to sell except gas. Yeah. And and weapons. Yeah. The roads are very often unpaved. Yes. Once you get away from the big cities. Correct. Yeah. You're going from from the tour, from, from I've heard from some people saying being in, uh, for example, Moscow, and go 50 mile outside and it's like being in the third world. That's right. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. For a country that should be terribly wealthy because it has such vast resources. Yeah. I, I don't understand. I mentioned the Banshee. In all your interviews, did, did the Banshee come up a lot in, in with the older people? It does. The, or she does, sorry, because Banshee is just a combination of the two Irish words, Ban. Woman, she, fairy, she's the fairy woman who foretells a death among the true Irish. But there's the problem. Who are the true Irish? Lots of people think they are the O's and the Max, but they're not. They used to be. But you look at a list of people who claim the Banshee now, and you'll get a list of the Adamses from the A's down to the UVF, UVWXYZ. I was going to say the UVF, and I have no doubt the UVF will claim the Banshee as well if it suited them. 
But you see, what happened there was when the British, the English, the British started claim Irish land, mm. confiscated Irish land back in the 17th century, and came in. They weren't stupid. They very quickly saw that the Irish, the true Irish, had a banshee. It was like a, a seal of office. <laughs> this proves that we are the owners of this land. And so they said, well, this is a way of proving that we now own this land. And they said, well, we'll get a banshee too. We'll claim a banshee too. And that's what they did. So that's why we say the, the Deverus which is about as English as you could get. We now have a banshee, and so therefore we are Irish. And name any other... Wilkinsons. We have a banshee, okay. so we must be Irish. Okay. And that's why you'll get down through the list of people now who have a banshee. They're half of them are English. The names, at least. Yeah. All right, you'll get McCarthy's or Connor and etc. O'Brien, the, the, the true invested commas Irish all have a banshee naturally enough going back and back and back through Irish history and probably through prehistory of course but you'll get the new Irish who of course are now Irish as much as any other person are Irish because look when you think of it there is no there is no country that is pure bred anymore no. we're all mongrels yeah. and I suppose all the healthy for that yeah. just like dogs they say that the, the, the true bred dog is the most unhealthy dog of all. Any vet will tell you that. Uh, whereas the mongrel will survive through anything, yeah. uh, more than likely. Yeah. So that is the story of the banshee. But the, the stories I have heard, sometimes they would put your hair standing up. Because I don't believe every story I hear okay. about the fairies, about ghosts, about banshees, or anything else. No. How do you determine? Just by experience. I have been collecting these stories for 46 years now. The first, the first tape I have below from, from that old man again that told me the story that my father sent me out to meet that old man that he knew. That tape is from 10th. October 1975. Okay. Count that yourself. The year I was born, so uh, 46. 46 years. Yeah. I was born in 1950. Okay. So I was 26 then. And I remember that old man. He was 90, I think, then. So that'll put him away, way back. He's the man who remembered the Boer War. Yeah. And I remember, oh Lord, he calling me, sir. Sir. <laughs> so, yeah. And I'm a young lad of 26 and yeah. he 90. He was such a lovely old man. Yeah. Oh, oh. But we got used to each other and I visited him for, I think, about nine years before he died. But I visited him oh, as often as I could because he was an amazing man. I only met about four men like him in those 46 years. Yeah. Because they're a rarity. Yeah. You don't meet him anymore. You don't meet those people anymore. Absolutely. People that you can visit forever mm. and never meet the end of their stories. You can go back again and again and again and again. I have one man like that, and I think I have 170 hours of him on tape. That's right. An MD. And I, I'd be still going to him, except he died. I, I was there at his hospital bed when he died. 
and I got a photo of him just on his hospital bed. I got permission, of course, from the nurses, but they had no objection because they knew that I was one of the family, if you could call it that. Yeah. But uh, it was the same, actually, when my aunt died last year. She was 101. And... uh, I, even then, you know, you always feel sensitive about taking photos, but she was laid out at home and they had her deck of cards inside in the coffin with her because she was a great card player. Yeah. So I asked her children, did they mind if I just took a a photo of her? They had no objection. Why would they? Um, But you know, you have to be sensitive um, because after all, she was the last of my father's family. And uh, of course, why not? Because I was taking a photo for them too. Yeah. Because very often it's hard for a family to take yeah. a photo of their own. It's easier for a, a kind of an outsider. Yeah. So I did. And oh, she looked lovely. She looked as peaceful, peaceful. Some don't. Yeah. Some do, but she did. Yeah. And uh, of course we were saying, why wouldn't she? She's gone off playing cards with the crowd above and she's probably above there now enjoying herself because she had a kind of a smile on her face uh, but it was it was nice to see that at 101 that they had put in the deck they obviously whoever laid her out and the family they had that sense of yeah you know, lovely yeah they had they had and Eddie, you mentioned there, uh, you know, stories that would make the hair stand on the back of your neck. Is there, is there one that uh, sticks out in your mind? Well, I'll tell you, an old man said to me once, and I had no reason to disbelieve him. He was a great man for night visiting, Cwrdd Theoth, as they call it, Bahaming, they call it in Kerry, various names, I'm sure, in, in Wicklow, the beauty for the name again. But... He liked, he wasn't married and he liked to visit this old couple next door whose family were long gone. And just to keep company, you know, just as nice, neighbourliness is a nice thing. It's nearly gone nowadays because everybody is gawking at the television. Yeah. But he was living a couple of fields away. And in those days, you'd walk around the road, of course, if it was a bad night, keep your boots dry. But if it was a dry night, you'd come the fields, of course, shortcut. And this lovely bright night. And it didn't matter, dark or bright, because he knew his way. He was travelling these fields for years, as most people were. They'd know their way in the darkness. But uh, it was a bright night, so he took the shortcut, and it brought him just in by the gable of the cowhouse and into the yard, into their yard. And tapped the door, and in he came. And there were the old couple sitting by the hob, open fireplace, and welcome. And he sat in with him and they chatted away about whatever they were talking about, the gossip of the day, maybe a game played or the price of cattle or whatever, whatever. And came to 11 o'clock, they wouldn't ever stay late in those days, you know, there'd be no half past 12 or anything like that. Came to 11 o'clock and he said he'd be going. They had had a cup of tea or the usual. And he'd be going, he said, and the man of the house said, wait a while, he said, wait a while. Oh God, no, he says, I, I, I have to go. Wait, wait. And uh, he didn't give any reason for it. But no, your man insisted. He said, I have to be up in the morning. 
So he got up and went to the door, but the man of the house said, you might be back. Anyway, he lifted the latch and he went out. And off he went across the yard, out the way he had come, by the gable of the cowshed. But said he had just gone maybe a couple of steps beyond the gable, you know, into the field. Yeah. Well, he'd normally travel. When he had the noise, he had the noise of a crowd and they're shouting, shouting, you know, and he had the, you know, the pucking of a ball. That, Again, we're hurling. Hurling, yeah. 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 At 11 o'clock at night, and of course, he paused. Thought he was imagining things. The bitches, he said, I must see this. Because, you know, there's a bright moonlit night. And now, he told, there was a small little rise of ground on his left, where the, the thing was coming from. So he said, I'd have to see this. And he took a few steps forward. But if he did, there was a hand laid on his chest, and he was a burly kind of a man now when I knew him as an old man. So when he was young at that time, he must have been a he must have been a, a fairly hefty kind of a man. Yeah. So he took a couple of steps forward and there was a hand laid on his chest and he got a, a push back. Now he took him by surprise, you know, and he kind of stumbled. Though he was startled more than frightened. And he stepped forward again, and if he did, he was held. No, he saw nothing. He saw nothing. But the crowd was still, still there, and the hurrying and shouting, and you know, the, the pucking of the ball. But said, he knows it was time to turn, and did turn, back by the cowhouse, back into the yard, and back to the door. And lifted the latch and in. And there were the old couple still by the fireplace. And uh, he pushed the door out behind him, and <laughs> the man of the house just <laughs> gave it a laugh. And he didn't laugh. He only came down to the fire, sat down. And the man of the house just nudged his wife, you know, he says, Make a drop of tea for the man. And you know the old black kettle would be hanging at the crane that time over the fire all the time. And uh, she did. She made a cup of tea for him, gave it to him. And the man of the house, he leaned over and he said, look, he said, they'd be playing there some night, he says, some night. And uh, they don't like witnesses. They don't like anyone watching their game. And he says, Pretty good here, no? And he said, there were no words spoke after that. And he drank his tea, and he was there looking into the fire, thinking, what'll I do? What'll I do? But after about 20 minutes, the man of the house, he looked up at the clock, and he said, you can go away now, he said. That finished. So he down his cup on the table, and he went out to the door, and uh, go down. And outside the door he was wondering to himself, will I go the road, or will I go the same way? In fact, he says, I went the same way, I went out by the gable of the cowhouse, he says, and why, he said, 
because if I didn't, I'd never go that way again. Yeah. So I did. And there was nothing. Nothing. Not a sound. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Tell me about uh, Biddy Early. Oh, Biddy. Well, the new edition of my book was out recently and I found her death cert and her death cert is in it. Finally, I found her death cert and the death cert to one of her four husbands. Incredible. They're in it. And it was by accident I found it. I was rooting around for something else in the courthouse in Ennis there a couple of years ago and one of the women then down in the births, deaths and marriages set when they transferred all the stuff down there to the other place in Ennis. She was very helpful and she got it for me so in a way you know that I could and permission for me to, to duplicate it for the book. So it's in the book and Biddy of course was the most famous of all of the healing women of the 19th century. Now some people called her a witch which was a nonsense. She wasn't a witch. She was a healing woman. She was a Banfassa, as they called them. A Banfassa. A Banfassa, a woman of knowledge. Because there were no witches in Gaelic Ireland. The only witches that occurred in Ireland were in Anglo-Ireland, wherever Norman culture occurred. There was the Carrickfergus witches. There was burnings there. And there was Alice Kittler in Kilkenny, who was accused of witchcraft. Wherever Norman culture touched Ireland, there you had witches, but in Gaelic Ireland you had no witchcraft because there were no witches. Yeah. You had uh, Manar Fassa, but uh, that was quite a different thing. You had knowledge, knowledge of the other world, and that was acknowledged as being a legitimate thing in Gaelic Ireland. Now Biddy, of course, had that knowledge, she had knowledge of the fairies, she had knowledge of plants. And she was a good psychologist. Yeah. Obviously, this uh, live or leot she had. Plant knowledge. Plant knowledge. And of course, that was it's coming back now. Yes. It's coming right back now, this live or leot. And it was always there. Because look, many of our modern medicines are made from plants. For sure. And that, that had been underground for a long time that uh, medical companies were using plants. And of course they were. Yeah. And rightly so. Yeah. And uh, if only people knew what is going waste around them, what we call weeds. There are no such thing as weeds. Weeds are only uh, good plants that we don't acknowledge for our gardens. For example, why, why, why come spring... All of the plants are yellow. Yeah. Every plant in spring is yellow. What we call pisabids, dandelions, yeah. and all of the other flowers. Uh, what are the other little gold flowers? Uh, buttercups. Buttercups, yeah. dandelions, and all those other ones in the spring are yellow. After the dark winter, those bright ones give us a lift yeah. for our psychology. Yes. All of them. Yeah. Look around you, come spring, and you'll see that all of the plants are yellow. Not by, not by accident. It's nature's way of telling us that uh, brightening our spirits after a dark winter. Nature knows more than we do. Yeah. And all of the gobbledygooks that you have now in so many psychology, this thing, this, blah, 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 lot of it 
could be simplified down to nature knows Absolutely. best. Biddy knew that. And she knew it, I think, from her mother. Her mother knew, her mother was also a live only. And Biddy, uh, even though, even though people say that it was out of her famous bottle, her dark bottle, that her cures came. It was a combination, perhaps she had the bottle, but I think the bottle was a prop. Okay. Because people came to her in their droves. There was always a queue at Biddy's house. And you see, whatever queue she had, she certainly had it in herself because there was no successor to her. We know that she had one child. We know that she had a son. We think also she had a daughter, even though she was married four times. There was no successor to her power. And if she had, uh, if she had this bottle, now, I think since most of the cures that she gave, and she did give cures, there's no doubt about that, were based on the psychology that she saw. You see, when you came to her, she examined each individual person. She saw whether they were crazy. <laughs> she, you know, she could sum you up. And she could very quickly tell you to piss off about your business if she saw that you had been criticising her at home. She could see right through you. You know, if you had been criticising her along the road to her, she'd know it. Yeah. It must have frightened the life out of, of, of people. Of people, yeah. And she could tell when you came to her door, your name, where you came from, the nature of your, your ailment. You know, it must have terrified people what she knew about you. She had a very high power. Something. Yeah. Something. Yeah. And the cure very often was from the well at the foot of her boreen. Okay. Now that well is still there, and it's just water. It is there. Oh, it's there. It's there. The little well is. And when you go there today and think, all the thousands and yeah. thousands of cures that came out of that. Yeah. Now spring water, and it goes back to the old thing like holy wells. Yeah. The amount of cures that are in spring water. Now Biddy obviously had something more than just live or lived. She had this this. Um, she had this ability to connect the, this, these various strands of, of holy sacredness, we'll say, and plant lore and psychology. Yeah. They all seem to meet in her. Yeah. And I have heard clerical people who are unwilling to condemn Biddy in any way today, even though she got into big trouble at the time with clergy. But remember, remember that was at a time when clerical politics were a big thing. Politics, because it was in the 19th century when the church was just after being liberated from um, the penal times. So there were different times when these kind of things weren't so much understood as they would be understood today. Yeah. There was politics involved at that time when priests didn't want to be seen as involved with popish superstition in front of their Protestant uh, neighbours. Yeah. See, you can't compare the two times. I bring that out in the book as best I can. Yeah, brilliant. And, and your current book is, is Meeting the Other Crowd. Is that the current That's book? That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's the story, the stories of the old people that the old people gave me about the fairies. The fairies. Now that's in its 16th edition already. 
and you can get it in Japanese or you can get it in Italian and they even used it in Moscow University. Incredible. <laughs> Very nice. And so it'll just show you the fairies, the good people I prefer to call yeah. them. Or Medina Ushla, or Bunachnik, or Namikilins as they call them in Tipperary, or Napuchi as they call them in Kerry. You know, there's many names for them. Uh, they're known all over the world, mm. not just in Ireland. Every country has their own version of these. But they are not the little spiky-eared, little gossamer-winged. No, no. I remember one old man, he told me, and I, it still sticks in my mind. He met them. He met them. He died only last year at the age of 100. And again, a man I have about 70, 80 hours of on tape. A most interesting man. And he met them. And I said to him, Mickey, I said, what do they look like? And I can remember him pausing. And he turned to me and he said, the person sitting beside you could be one of them and you wouldn't even know it. <laughs> a frightening answer. That'll give you the heebie-jeebies. Absolutely a frightening answer when you think. You know, yeah. They're shapeshifters. Yeah. They could be in the shape of the black dog or of something that looked like your best friend yeah. and you wouldn't know it. Right. Eddie, a final question for you. Do, do you think we're losing our folklore? Like you mentioned there, televisions and, you know, years and years ago, my mom, my dad would talk about it sitting around the fire. There'd be stories. But now everyone is stuck in their phones, stuck in their iPads, etc. Do you think we're losing our tradition, the folklore tradition? We're losing one particular kind of folklore. We're losing that old kind of folklore. We're losing that kind of tradition. I've no doubt there'll be a different kind of folklore for these younger people, but it won't be the same kind. Uh, the new kind of folklore will be a kind of scripted folklore from television. It won't be the oral folklore that was passed down from generation to generation. Yeah. It won't be ours because it'll be very much imported and it'll be a kind of bland worldwide folklore. Uh. I saw recently in UCC that they're doing a very interesting kind of project, a kind of urban folklore, which involves getting the names of buildings that were belonged to such and such and such and such people down through the generations. Mainly shops, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, and all of the changes that have taken place in that building, that, you know, down, 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 through all the generations. And it's remarkable the changes that have. Now, when you're reduced to that kind of dumb, yeah. and this is a dumb folklore, yeah. because nobody can speak there because they're all dead. Now, you can sometimes speak to people who knew the people who were in there, but you are, in a way, taking photos of the building that, well, the previous owners are gone. Yeah. They're dead. You may be lucky enough to find uh, a person who can tell you, oh, I knew the, the, the McNamaras who lived in that shop and the crowd who were there before them were the Joneses who owned a chip shop there. And, oh, I remember... Yeah, there was a crowd who used to own a shop that sold mattress, 
you can go so far. So far back. Yeah. It's yeah. an interesting project. It, it is an interesting project. Something It should often, be done. Yeah, absolutely should be done. Something I often thought about rock, walking around cities, and you might see a Vodafone shop, yes. but it's in an old building. Absolutely. What's been there before that and before us? You do people do think about that? Oh yes, that's and, a good and, project. And it has to be done be- has to before be done. the place is knocked down. Exactly. Because it, when it's knocked down, especially in a city that's developing rapidly, yeah, all you see is a gap. You see the the, the story recently of the the cobblestone pub in Dublin. They're they're wanting to knock yes, it down to put in a hotel. Oh, that is once that's done, that's it. All you have is a memory of you don't maybe even know what it looked like. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Eddie Lenahan, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for, for taking the time. I'm only sorry that we had noises of traffic behind us, but such is life. Such is life. During this goddamn COVID. Exactly. But I, looking back, uh, that's a part of history too. The background noises. For sure. During COVID. For sure. Oh, no. There's a reason we're we're here where we are because of COVID. So yeah. Mm-hmm. It's history in itself. Right. If you had it in complete silence, it should be too too quiet. That's part of the... Uh... The crows even joined in. They did. It was nice. Oh. Thanks, Eddie. Okay. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did with the great folklorist Eddie Lenahan. For more on Eddie Lenahan, you can check out his website, eddielenahan.wibbly.com. His fine collection of books are available from Amazon and Enna's bookstore online. His brilliant podcast, which he tells me he has a new uh, episode of in about a month's time. It's a podcast that I never miss. The title of the podcast, Tell Me a Story. Check it out on Acast or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks to Eddie Lenahan. It was a real pleasure. And thank you for listening. Until the next time, Slonga Foil. You can contact the podcast on Ireland Talks Podcast at AOL.com. <laughs>